Father, we are thankful that you have uh, come to visit us and you have, you have become part of us and you become one of us and we are, are grateful for that. I and mean, it's just a, um, a miracle and just a, a, an event that is beyond comparison. And Father, we are asking that the Savior be prominent for us, that we do not lose sight of who we are here for and who we represent and who we are to reflect to others, that we are to reflect the love of Jesus to others. So Father, we pray as we look into your word this morning and as we take communion that it'll be a time of, of unity, it'll be a time of, of true communion with you, and we are so grateful that you have broken down, uh, the gospel has been broken down walls between us and you and between each other. So Father, we are committed to your scriptures, we are committed to your love, we are committed to representing you in our generation. And so, Father, we ask that you take your word this morning and that you change us, that you transform us, that you, uh, you take your word and you plant it into our hearts and that um, we, we live that out and uh, live it out in, with grace and humility. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last, uh, over the, one of the things that um, Sue and I missed is uh, when we were years, you know, years ago, we kind of missed every, all the pop culture stuff that went on in the 90s and in that first decade of the 2000s. Uh, missed the music, we missed the TV shows, we missed a lot of the movies and things like that, uh, just because we weren't here. And, uh, and one of those phenomenons that we missed was uh, Seinfeld. Uh, we heard of it, of course, and we only saw maybe an episode here and there if we happened to be in a hotel and, uh, and, and with cable and we'd have to pick it up occasionally. So that's really, or if I was visiting my sister, sometimes we'd see it, see it there. But uh, we really never saw it. But now it's on Netflix and we thought, well, what's this thing? What's this phenomenon back in the 90s? You know? So we started, let's, let's watch and see what's going on. So we kind of started at season one. And uh, we just, we watched one episode recently where the whole episode took place in the waiting room of a Chinese restaurant, or the lobby, and the whole thing. And the whole thing was about getting a table. And the whole 30 minutes was about conversations, about people being seated before them, or how to get a seat, how to, how to bribe the host, or, or whatever. And then the, you know, George is trying to make a phone call, and you know, it was just this mess. The whole episode was in one place, one scene. And uh, really what they were doing was they were trying to play off the cliche that Americans hate to wait. And we do. We, you know, it's kind of part of it. We just don't, don't like waiting. But that's, that's kind of superficial waiting. You know, waiting in the checkout line, those kind of things. That's just, that's just, you know, that's just an annoyance. But there's another kind of waiting, another kind, uh, that's, that's much more serious. Um, you know, how many years have Sue and I waited for another child? only to have the cruel experience of losing one. How many you know, single people want to say, am I waiting to get married, or what's my next chapter in life? Or people who are chronically ill, just waiting to be, to be to, for some relief. Or those in a career who are waiting for a, a, something to happen, a door to open, or uh, you know, something to break for them in a career. Or, or waiting in an unhappy marriage and just waiting for some kind of relief or, or some kind of resolution. Or students waiting to see what my life is going to be like and what's it going to be when I, when I um, uh, get out of school and do that and all kinds of things. Or, 
or if you're the lonely who are just waiting for a place to belong. In this kind of waiting, waiting is not really something we do. It's really something that actually shapes us. It forms us, uh, how we do it. It, it, it. it affects our personality, it affects our being, and it's really something that we do. And it really doesn't have much to do with time as it does with, with uh, hope and, uh, and despair even. Uh, there is no, you know, BuzzFeed, 10 great ways to handle waiting, to do waiting. There is no list like that to help us do that. And so the word in, uh, in let's see, let's see if we can go here. I'm not moving here. When uh, the, the phrase that we have, uh, uh, how long, how long, O Lord, that just takes on a whole new meaning of how long, is this going to be? And it has other phrases with it. Are we, can we move on to the next one or not? There we go. How long, O oh Lord, takes on another phrase. Uh, it really means, can I trust you? Uh, we see this phrase all the time in the Psalms. You can do a whole series of, uh, on the Psalms of, of how long, O oh Lord. Is there any reason for this? Uh, is there any reason for this to be happening, Lord? How much more can we take? How much more do you think we can take? And what are you doing? That's what it means when we say, how long, Lord, scripturally, when the Bible says, how long, Lord. And it, it creates this, this feeling of, of either numbness or despair. Uh, if you become numb, you just lose all kind of discernment. And those who become despairing just lose all kind of hope. And that's who Isaiah is writing to, and that's who Isaiah is preaching to. He is preaching to people in exile who are calling out, how long, Lord? How much more can we take? How can you really truly be, truly be trusted? And it wouldn't even dawn on them. They wouldn't have the slightest idea that there would be a hope that they would return to the land. Because that's what exile is all about. When an empire comes and, and conquers a people and they take them into exile and they take them into captivity, the whole reason for this is to get rid of a threat to remove the people as a threat to them, and so they take them into exile, and so the Jews had no reason to think that one day they might return. They might return home. That was just totally out of it. Well, Isaiah responds to that, and his response is, is don't you know? Have you not heard? His response is this, let me remind you that this God wants to be seen this God wants to be heard. This God wants to be experienced. Do you not know? Have you not seen? Well, let me remind you. Let me remind you about who this God is. He's a God who wants to be seen. And last week we looked at that first half of chapter 40 where, where Isaiah gives them this, this wild idea that Isaiah, that God is this God of all comfort. And he wants to comfort, and he comes to be gentle with us like a shepherd, but yet he also comes with power. And this last half of chapter 40 just kind of describes all of that. We have that moving introduction. It just moves you, you know, in that first, those first uh, uh, 10 verses, first 11 verses, and then now he's kind of sort of getting his stride to talk about this, and he says, I'm going to present to you, remind you that this God is incomparable. He has no rival. He has no peers. He is alone in that. 
and there are deep grounds that you can put your feet in and realize that this is the God of all comfort. This is the prophetic message. He's saying, take a hard look. Here's a God who wants to be seen. Take a good look. Those of us who kind of are familiar with the Bible, we kind of would expect him to say, don't be afraid. That's what I would expect. But instead he says, take a good look. Here is your God. Do you not know? Have you not seen? You may think you know him, but you really don't. Or you may think you know him, but you don't know him enough. And this is what he's telling the people of Israel, the people of Judah who are in captivity. And the more I thought about this, and, and, I, and I've talked this over with other people, this is what we need to hear. Do you not know him? You don't know him like you think you do. And I don't know him like I think I do. I think I know him in my head. I know some theology. That's not the same thing. Do you know him? Do you really know him? And that's what Isaiah is asking them. He says, think about him and contemplate on this. Let me remind you who he is. And so it goes on, and we can divide it up into really three easy sections. He says that the first section is, first, you've got to get the big picture. Get the big picture that he is the creator. He is the creator, and that just implies that he is, a, he is the ruler. He, it doesn't, he sort of hints at the kingdom of God in, these, in this section. He, he deals with it more in chapter 52, but right now he just sort of hints that this God is the, is the creator. And the way he decides the creation, it's like he's got this, this really precise recipe for this. You know, he says, I measured, out the, I measured out the oceans in the palm of my hand. I measured out the dirt, and I'm, I, I've laid out the sky, and, and I've put the mountains on a scale. It's like he's, he's, he's describing that I've created this perfect balance for life. It's not just the environmentalists who talk about an ecological balance. We, Isaiah does too. He talks about how this is just this perfect recipe to come together for life. Now, now, the predominant scientific theory is that matter existed, and it existed just right to give birth to life. Well, Isaiah says it's just the other way around. It's that life exists that gives birth to matter. That's what God is. That's what Isaiah is talking about, that life is the one that's eternal, and it has given birth to the mountains and the oceans and the stars. And he says this is... It is, he is transcendent above them all. And he says, don't think for a minute that God is incapable or that God is unconcerned because he is involved. He will be involved in you. And just the idea of God has a certain resonance among people today. I mean, we kind of think we have, and even, even Christians, even people in the church think, yeah, we kind of have an idea that God exists. That's, that's good. But not like this. Uh, Woody Allen said, he said, uh, I sort of believe in God. I just think he's an underachiever. Well, he never read Isaiah. Isaiah says, this is just the opposite. You don't know who this God is. This is the one who measures the mountains. This is the one who measures the oceans in the palm of his hands. This is the one who, who, who lays out and measures out the sky. This is the God that's beyond that. He transcends everything. 
And he goes on in this first section of 12 through 17, he says he doesn't need a mediator. He doesn't need this line of gods, other gods leading up to him to tell him what to do. He doesn't need a council to say, well, gee, what do I do now? Let me listen to the council like these other emperors are saying. I got to hear something from you. I got to hear your advice. He has all wisdom, he says. He doesn't need a council. And he is involved. And I was telling, telling Sue and reading this passage this week that I, I can imagine this. And I, I'm a, I've always, always since a kid, since we visited the McDonald Observatory down in Central Texas once, just incredibly fascinated by space. I love the space movies. I love the space TV shows, the Star Trek, the Star Wars. I love them all. They're fascinating. And I just keep imagining this infinite thing and just thinking we have, we have these stars that are probably burned out but we don't know it yet because there's so many light years away they haven't reached us yet. And all this is out there. And so when I, it kind of makes your mind explode a little bit. You know, your head kind of gets, gets explosive and you don't know what that is. But the problem is, I think of how infinite that is and I cannot wrap my mind around it, but how can this God then be so involved and personal? How can he care about this little planet in our little solar system? And how can he care about this little guy on this little planet in our little solar system? But he does. And Christmas is all about that. That he came to us. That is what's incredible. And it's like he starts out here with the stars and the mountains and the ocean, and then he, now he's coming down, and he goes down, and he goes, let's talk about the nations. And he says, they're just drops in a bucket. They're just specks of dust. And what he means by that, he says, you're all so obsessed. Babylon, Assyria, Moab, all, they're all obsessed with their, he says, their coastlines and their islands, and in other words, their, their land and their property their boundaries and your ethnicity and your race and you're all obsessed about this and he goes you're just drops in the bucket don't worry about those things don't worry about them they're all mine and he says he says if if you wanted to sacrifice to me if you wanted to worship me said there wouldn't be enough trees in lebanon to build a fire big enough and there wouldn't be enough animals in your land to sacrifice for me because I own it all. It's all mine. It's, I created it. So don't even bother with that. Don't be obsessed with that. Because it all belongs to me anyway. And he's involved. He's involved. We don't need to be obsessed with this because it all belongs to him. Every bit of it. And so Isaiah goes on and says, okay, you know you're, you're engulfed in all these idols around you and these gods around you in Babylon and, and you're in this captivity. And he says, let's, let's give this some thought. Let's think this thing through, okay? So he says, I know you're engulfed with all these gods and you're thinking these gods are really powerful because that's why you're in exile, because these gods are so powerful and you got people bowing down to them and you're worshiping them and, and you think, you know, these, these really did us in because they're more powerful than Yahweh. And, and Isaiah said, let's think about this for a minute. He said, what these idols are is you had a craftsman who made a mold, who made a, made a, a statue out of a mold, 
And then this same craftsman laid gold over it, made it nice and pretty. And then he even gave him a, a, a silver necklace. Nice. Little, little touch of beauty there. Then he said, let's go some really good wood so it won't rot. And he goes, then let's put on some braces so it won't topple over. This is the guy you're afraid of? This is the one who can fall over? This is a man-made thing, and you worship the God who made the elements of the man-made thing. Let's think this thing through. There is no reason to fear this, this poor little feeble idol who might fall over if it wasn't braced up. Now, of course, they, they have images of idols. In our world, we have lots of other idols, but the same principle applies regardless of what our idol may be. We still have to prop them up. We still have to be careful that they don't fall over. We still have to do, invest our energy into them just so they exist. And Isaiah's saying, let's think about this. Is this silly or is this ridiculous? He says, let me remind you. He says, do you not know have you not heard? Let me remind you, this God wants to be seen. He wants to be known. In the Screwtape Letter, C.S. Lewis talks about the, 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 the terrible work of the devil. And he says most people think that the devil's work is to put these ideas into our heads. And he says really the devil is more active by taking ideals out of our heads. And I think that's what happens to people here. And that's what can happen to us. That the ideas are removing out of our heads. We forget who our God is. We forget what he's like. We forget that he is the creator of everything we see. He says, put those ideas back into your head, not out. And he says, remember... Those, they're like, remember in the first section that we saw last week, they're like the flowers that bloom and they only bloom for a while and then they dry up. They're like the grass and all it takes is a breath from God and they're all gone. That's what these gods are like. And so he goes on, he says, who is my equal? Do I even have an equal? Do I even have a peer? He said, let's go outside, just like I did with Abraham. Let's go outside and look at the stars. And he goes, yeah, that's difficult to grasp that a God created all this and it just goes on and on and on. And part of the reason it's hard for us to grasp in the modern world is because we are so mechanical in our thinking. That we see God thinking like, we see God as this person who maybe has this, this material world and, and tinkers with it a little bit, but that's about it. And we, we need to step back and and because that's the, that's the idea that, God, that the devil has taken out of our head and we need to step back and look at the stars and go, oh, yeah, what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid? And Isaiah is saying, this God is of another dimension entirely. He has no rivals. He has no peers. He is in another dimension. He doesn't need to be braced up. He doesn't need a silver necklace to look good. And he says, people, you need to hear this and you need to contemplate on this. And we need to hear it and contemplate on this. 
just give us the big picture. Let's gain some perspective. I forgot to move on to the next slide. <clears throat> so finally, he says, we've got this God. He has no rivals. He's inc incomparable. He has no rivals. He has no peers. What's, how does that work? And here's where we reach the climax and the final end of this chapter. He says, what does it mean for us? And he says, I want you to embrace the mystery. I want you to embrace the mystery of what all this means. In, in verse 23, we have the cry. Really, this is the cry of the ages, all right? He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. How long, O Lord? This is the cry that goes through all the centuries. It, it, it went through Moses. It went through Abraham. It's gone through John the Baptist. Why, are, why, why am I going through this? Do, can I really trust you? That is the cry that has gone through the ages. It's gone through Jeremiah. We see it. It's just a very natural thing for us to do. And again, Isaiah responds, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Do you not know? Have you not heard? God wants to be seen. He wants to be seen. And he says, just not only does he have all this power, not only has all this strength, and, and, and remember he said he was, he's, the shepherd comes to be gentle with us, but he comes with the arm of power. And not only does that, it's not just because he has the power. You know what he does with it here? He shares it. He shares it with us. We have a strength and a power that is not native to us. He says he gives power to the frail and he gives power to the, to the weary. And he's not baffled by by situation and circumstances. He's not thwarted by his, our own failures. He's, he's, not, he's not puzzled by what's going on today. This is, this is not him. He works around it and he incorporates all those things. I, I've, seen, I've seen Sue do a painting, a watercolor, where something will happen to it. Uh, another a, a wrong color, she drips, well, and accidentally drips a wrong color on it, or the water's too runny, or, or even something gets on the painting, and she can either throw away the paper, which she never does because she doesn't like to waste paper, but she can incorporate it into the painting and make it beautiful. Oil painting, you can paint over it, she says. You can correct your mistakes, but not watercolor. You have to incorporate those things in there, and that's exactly what God does. This exile's not good. This pandemic's not good. These things aren't good, but they are like specks on a painting, and God incorporates them into, and, and creates something beautiful out of it. That's the promise we have, that all things work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who trust the Lord, Paul says, they work together for good. He can incorporate that and make something very beautiful and that's where something new and that's where we find forgiveness and healing and mercy so the question in verses 27 and 28 are answered in verses 29 through 31 there is a transfer of power that happens it is given to us there's a transfer of wisdom to us he says the word comes to us and our eyes are open with wisdom and understanding and when we want to run out of gas, when we're thinking we're just, I cannot make it any further, the power of the Lord comes and we're able to round the corner. I don't know how it works. I, I can't tell you the formula to make it possible that, that you always have that, that strength and that form. I don't know. I don't know. It just does. 
And I can tell you that because the Bible says it, and I can tell you that because I've experienced it. That somehow you just do it. You keep going. And the strength comes when you don't think you have any gas left to do, to go any further. And so you wait. You wait with this three steps of, of I can't do this. God can do this. So I let God do it. Three easy steps. And God says, and Isaiah says, even the young fall. Even, even the trained athletes stumble. And I'm, I'm at that age where I'm starting to realize I cannot do those things that I thought I could do. Um, I still remember throwing the football around with some guys at Northwestern College. And, and I was cutting across the field, and he was, he was leading me, and I was... And I was fully expected to be able to be there when the ball landed to catch it. And it, I wasn't there. What happened? I, I, I don't, I'm not as fast as I used to be. But even you young guys are going to stumble. Even you young guys get tired. And he says, when that happens, you have my strength. That is a major theme here. This is a different kind of waiting. It's not the kind of waiting in, an, in a Chinese restaurant or waiting for an appointment to show up, or waiting for a line in the checkout at the grocery store. This is a different kind of waiting. This is a waiting that talks about trust and patience and relinquishing. Relinquishing our little plans, relinquishing our little gods that we have created, our little idols. We relinquish those things, and it's not easy. I love Anne Lamont, and she says, everything I let go has claw marks. Let go or get dragged. It's like, I can relate to that. Everything that's let go, I've had to let go in my life, has claw marks all over it. Amen. And I can either let go, or I can get dragged. Easier to let go. And then finally, we have that famous verse in verse 31. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Those wonderful three pictures, word pictures. This is, of course, the verse that Eric Little quoted in the movie Chariots of Fire. And, of course, he applied it to an Olympic event, but later he applied it to his life. And these wonderful word pictures of, uh, of, a, of an eagle. Uh, we have some eagles in our neighborhood, and... and uh, then when you, we walked, they have a nest in this tree. And Sue said she was out there the other day walking and saw the eagle land with a salmon. It must have been a, a nest up there. You know, it was really incredible to watch. But we know what, here in Oregon, we know what those eagles look like. That they flap their wings to get altitude, but once they get there, the updraft just floats them. And they're able to rest in the, in the updraft in the warm air that, that rises up. And that's what getting God's strength is. We can flap our wings, but then we just rest. And somehow or another, somehow or another, he holds us up. I, like I said, I don't know how it works. I just know it does. And then he says, you run and not be weary. And when you run, you've got adrenaline. You've got, you've got a goal to reach. You're looking for something. You're looking for an end. You're doing it fast. And, and you've got a goal to reach. And then he says, you walk and not faint. And if you, on the first glance of this thing, you're thinking, it seems like you ought to be going the other way around. It seems like it has a kind of an anti-climax in it. You're going to fly in, running, and then you're walking. You'd think you would have gone the other way around. But I don't think this is an accident. Because I think walking is harder. 
running, you've got the adrenaline, you're going, you reach the goal, you're, you're looking for the end. But the hardest thing is to keep walking. And it's two different words here. They, they do translate it two different ways. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. And kind of the idea is they'll run and not be weary. They will walk and not be exhausted. Because walking is exhausting. Eugene Peterson says it's a long obedience in the same direction. And that's what it is. It just keeps walking one foot in front of the other where you're treading on and on and on. And that can really wear on your spirit. It can really drain you. Um, I have a quote from Emma from Jane Austen. I saw, this, I saw this actually in a movie. I didn't read the book. But she says, uh, Lady Fairfax says, we all know what it's like to be weary in spirit. Mine is exhausted. I, I don't know how many of you guys have felt this way, but I have. In these last couple of years, I want to say my spirit is weary and I'm exhausted. But strength comes. Strength comes, and it's a process. It's embracing the mystery. We have to embrace the mystery. We can have theological facts. We can have Bible study knowledge. We can have mem verses memorized. But unless we know it, know it by experience, then we don't, we don't see it as true. We don't see it as really true. One of my favorite singer, or, uh, so, um, singer songwriters is uh, Kelly McRae in Austin, Texas. And uh, she grew up in a, in a small church in uh, Alabama. And she wrote a song called uh, The Felt Board Jesus. And uh, she describes growing up in that, that church and that atmosphere. And she says it was, uh, we had all the manners, but none of the mystery. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, is that convicting? That we have all the manners, but none of the mystery. We all behave, but we don't have the mystery. We have all the theology, but we don't have the mystery. We have all the facts, but we don't have the mystery. We have to have the mystery. It is a process of walking, walking in the same direction. Isaiah's goal, role here is to criticize and energize. To criticize the people of saying, where, where are you going? Have you not heard? Do you not know this? And then his other purpose is to offer an alternative, a new way of looking at things. Uh, it's, he says, he's thinking, he's talking to a people where their hope has just been robbed from them. And, and he probably sounded absurd to these people. And I almost entitled this message, uh, is, was Isaiah Nuts? Because people are sitting back, what do you think they were saying to each other hearing this? Probably just that. Is he nuts? There's no hope here. But he says there is. There is. Richard Rohr talks about two moments that are really important in our lives. One moment, he says, is when we realize our one and only life is, is full of energy and joy and purpose and valuable. And he says the other moment is when we realize in the present that our life is pointless and empty. And he says those two moments, because we know that we have where the joy and the energy comes from, and the other moment is it knows us 
it keeps us in with a proper humility so that we keep seeking this God who wants to be found. We keep seeking the God who wants to be seen and heard and experienced. That we live in a God-permeated world and he wants to be known, he wants to be seen. That he is the source of power, he is gentle with us, and even though the Jews feel like the end of their world has come, the end of our world, though our world has died away, Isaiah is saying, yes, but God has not died. God does not die. And he's saying, if you trust him, then you won't die either. Your bodily functions may cease. Your body may cease to function. But according to the New Testament and according to the Advent that we celebrate, the Christmas we celebrate, is that when our body ceases to function, this experience that we call our lives will somehow be in the presence of God. And we will see the world like we've never seen it before. You remember when Jesus was, was, was tempted in the temptations, and, and, and Mark says that the, the heavens opened. What that means is that what is real was shown, was made manifest. What is real around us that we don't see was suddenly made manifest, was suddenly seen. And we'll see the world like we've never seen it before. This is the God who wants to be known and seen because that's what love is. Love wants to be known. Love wants to be seen. Love wants to be heard. Love wants to be experienced. That's what love is. We may have all the manners, but none of the mystery. That's what God is. So we are supposed to go through life as people who are able to see what's invisible, who are able to see the God of the universe, who are able to hear him because he wants to be seen. And I don't care what exile you are experiencing. I don't care what exile that, that you feel like you're in, whether it's a family issue or whether it's, you know, your children maybe failed you for some reason or you're in disgrace or you're experiencing madness or, or, or deep wounds in the past that keep coming up. He's telling you to keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And even though you're exhausted, he will give you the power. He wants to be seen and he wants to be known. And this is what Isaiah is telling them. I can't think of a better way to finish Isaiah 40 than with communion. So we're going to celebrate communion uh, this, this morning. And um, I'm going to ask the guys if they would come out and, and help pass out the, the cups, these little communion kits that we have. Feel free to go ahead and open them up now when you get them. And uh, it's always a little awkward. And while, while you guys are passing this out, <clears throat> I want to ask you, I'm going to invite you to spend some time in, in prayer, and I will lead us. I'll just let go, you guys go ahead and pass out, and I'll, I'm going to read while they... Um... Thank you, sir. John 1 says that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. 
And Psalm 55 says, Cast your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. So while you're receiving the cups, just sit in, pre- in, in, in silence for a minute and just remembering this past week as past, uh, this past week, and just remember, when did I experience God's love this week? Think about that and thank God for it. Just when have you experienced God's? It may have just have been as something as simple as, as somebody bringing you a cup of tea. But when did you experience God's love this week? I want to lead us in one more prayer. Philippians 2 says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them in the stars like the stars in the sky. So let me pray this. Lord, in our crooked generation, let me shine like the star that led the wise men to your side. I confess that I have not always done that this week. I name before you right now in silence the ways in which I have grumbled, the ways in which I have argued, and the ways I have been impure. Luke tells us in, the, in chapter 22, the story of the Last Supper. And he says, uh, and, and Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, you are our light and our salvation. We have nothing to fear. You are the strength that we long for, the true light that gives light to everyone that coming into the world. We thank you for the body that is broken for our sins. In the name of Jesus, amen. The body of Christ broken for you. Going on, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And in this way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. God of grace, thank you that when I was lost, you found me. That when I was ashamed, you forgave me. And nailing the accusations against me to the cross, remembering the forgiveness cost everything for you and nothing for me. And I receive the priceless gift of unconditional grace right now. This is the blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Amen.